Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. We're in John's gospel and uh, we're finishing John chapter 5 this morning and I'm going to do something slightly different. I want to deal with the text and then I'm going to use the text to uh, point us to a principle that we'll see comes out in the text. Um, It will be slightly different to our normal approach, but it will still be faithful to the text uh, as far as I can see. And, uh, and so I just want to quickly just bring us up to speed because from John chapter 2, John the Apostle has been focusing us on the miracles of Jesus. And John refers to these miracles as signs. They are signs because Jesus is communicating through the miraculous his identity. He wants to make known who he is. He's the Word of God, the eternal Word made flesh. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. John points to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus declares he's the way to the Father. He is Jacob's ladder. And we've seen all these wonderful revelations of who Jesus is. Now, what happens in John chapter 5 is Jesus ramps up his self-disclosure. Jesus is not only going to do signs and wonders, but he's now going to teach those who are offended. There are people who are offended. There are people who are rejoicing at these wonderful signs. There are people who are celebrating the fact that Jesus has turned water into wine, that Jesus has healed the official son. And and, and their conclusion is he must be God. And many are rejoicing, but not everyone. Some are saying, how can this man declare himself to be God? And so Jesus ramps up his self-disclosure, not just with signs and wonders, but today with teaching. He's actually going to teach how he is equal with the Father. And so before we get to the the verses that we're going to read, we're going to see here in John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says this, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is in light of a miracle. And the, the only thing they could focus on, you know, the man takes up his bed and he walks, is how could you do it on a Sabbath? The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are, are all bent out of shape because Jesus does a miracle. He's working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, it's okay, my father is working and I am working. And then he says this in verse 18, look at this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, here it is, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so the Jewish leaders, the Jewish Pharisees, they're angry and they're annoyed because of what Jesus is doing. And so what Jesus is going to do from verse 19 all the way through to the end of chapter 5 is he's going to lecture them. He's going to lecture them about his unique relationship between the Father and the Son. There is this divine relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, as I was preparing, it's all 28 verses I'm reading, and every verse references the Son and the Father, and the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Father. I'm thinking, God, it should have been Father's Day. (laughs) But it's Mother's Day. What are we going to do? And then it dawned on me that actually there's a powerful principle at work here because mothers flourish when there is the divine order of God 
at work and in play. So here's what we're going to see. I want to speak to, firstly, the divine relationship between the Father and the Son, and then we're going to apply that to God's divine revelation in creation. Okay, so we're going to get there. So the first thing we want to see is that there's the divine relationship between the Father and the Son, and we see it in three ways. The first way we see it is the worth the worth of the Father and the Son. Listen to the words of Jesus here in verses 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, here's the lecture, right? The lecture is about to start. They, they, they want to kill him. Let's just get the context. They want to kill him because he's doing the work of God. He's claiming to be God. Jesus says, okay, boys, sit down. Let me speak. So Jesus said to them, truly, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And what begins to unfold in this lecture is what theologians refer to as some of the most important doctrinal statements about the Trinity, about the divine relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It is a profound revelation of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. And what we will see is not only is there a loving relationship, because that's the first thing that stands out. There is a loving relationship between Father and Son. There is a shared worth. There is an equality between father and son. But also what we're going to see is there is shared activity. There is a bond and a relationship. They are not the same. There is the father and there is the son. They're not the same, but they're equal. There is a shared worth. There is a loving relationship. In order for love to be love, there has to be another person, Right? If God was only one person, yes, we have one God, but we have one God. The doctrine of the Trinity is there is one God in three persons. And that's why there is a loving relationship. If God was one God and one person, then he cannot be a God of love because who's he loving? Before at least he made man, then we would say, well, he was incomplete. He was unable to love. But no, what we see is in eternity past, before creation even began, the God of the Bible is a loving God because he's one God, three persons, and there is love. It says here, the Son loves the Father, and the Father loves the Son. There is a loving relationship, and there is shared worth. It's profound. But not only that, there is shared activity. So there are different roles. The father has a role to play and the son has a role to play. But there are shared activities. Point number two is not not only the worth of the father and the son, but the works of the father and the son. And so the lecture continues. Jesus then says in verse 20, And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So that's the the goal. The goal is that you would believe, that you would be in awe. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son 
just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, the works of the Father and the Son are a shared activity. Jesus has described how they share attributes. They share worth. But here he's describing shared activity. The Father gives life. The Son gives life. The the Father makes judgments. The Son makes judgments. There, There is this shared activity. Now, I want to get a little bit nerdy with you because the early church fathers particularly Irenaeus and Tertullian, they refer to this dynamic relationship of the workings of the Trinity. So the workings of the Father and the workings of the Son and the workings of the Spirit, they they refer to this dynamic relationship working as the economic Trinity. That was the word they used. And they used it Because the root of the word is important. We'll get to that shortly. But what it refers to is the various roles and works by which God reveals himself in creation. So there are moments where the Father is working and moments where the Son is working and moments where the Holy Spirit is working. And the conclusion we are to come to is not that they are working against each other or in competition with one another, but they actually complement one another. And there is an economy at work. Let me, let me get John Calvin to help make it very clear for you, right? Here we go. John Calvin says this, The basic idea here is that the economic trinity is the epistemological ground of the imminent trinity, whereas the imminent trinity is the ontological ground of the economic trinity. Got it. Great. I knew you guys were smart. I won't even read it again. So let me explain it in layman's terms. Calvin was a genius, proficient in nine languages, a lawyer, and a theologian. The term economic comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which is a word you might be familiar with. It literally, when when they use the word economic trinity, it literally means household management. That, That in the Godhead, There is this mysterious working where they're not competing, but they're complementing one another. The father is working and the son's working, but the son's work's not the same as the father's work because the son dies on the cross, not the father. And then the spirit applies that work to the children of God. And so there's this economic trinity. There's this household management. The father plans our salvation He plans our salvation with love and power before the foundations of the world. Then the Son in his death and resurrection makes that salvation possible. And then the Spirit of God regenerates and seals, applying the Son's work to the hearts of men. That's the economic trinity. The Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it. It's a beautiful picture. And so Jesus is describing this, and, and we, could, we could do a lecture ourselves, but I don't want to bore you with a lecture. I've just grabbed bits to intrigue you. 
We've got the worth, we've got the, the works, and then Jesus goes on and he describes the witnesses. Look at this, the witness to the Father and the Son. He goes on in verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. There's this dynamic relationship. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, here it is, this witness part, if I bear witness about myself, my, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. This is the Father now. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. In other words, what Jesus is saying, hey, all of these miracles, it's the Father working. I'm working and the Father is working. He's unpacking that statement. When I work, when I do a sign and a wonder, it's the Father who's working and he's doing it by the word of the Spirit. So the Father is witnessing to the Son. The Father is bearing witness to the Son. But there are also other witnesses. Look at this. Verse 33. Jesus carries on the lecture. He says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. In other words, what he's saying is they, they, they actually appreciated John's ministry. They didn't quite get it, but, but they respected him. They respected him because he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he bore witness to the truth, Jesus says. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he's like, hey, you believed in John. You believed the Old Testament prophet John. The Father is bearing witness, not only through John, but through these signs and through these wonders. But then Jesus goes on and he rebukes them. Here's the end of the lecture. From verse 39 to 47, not only is John bearing witness, but now Jesus says all scripture is bearing witness that Jesus is the son of God. Look at this, verse 39. He says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? By the way, this is scathing. This is a scathing rebuke. He's saying you, you're more interested in your own glory and seeking glory from one another than the true reality of the glory of God revealed in Christ, his son. Look at verse 45. It says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, he turns the gun on themselves. They're pointing the gun at Jesus and he turns it on themselves and he says, Moses is gonna expose you. Moses on whom you've set your hope. Look at this verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, 
How will you believe my words? And so the final witness is that all of Scripture bears witness to the Father endorsing the Son, to this dynamic relationship in the Trinitarian Godhead. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that even Moses, think about it, he's summarizing all of the Pentateuch, the first five books, Moses wrote the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that. And when you read it, you might think, oh, this is just boring. This is law. This is history. This is sacrifice. These are... But it's all about Jesus. And if you don't read it with an eye on Jesus, then it can be boring. But when you put Jesus at the center, not because that's some fancy church tradition, but because Jesus himself says, Moses is writing about me. So, so we've got Christ's very own words saying, when you read Moses, read it with an eye on Christ. And then notice what he says. He says in verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, here's the point. There is a right way and a wrong way to read the scriptures. They've been reading it wrong. They've been reading it wrong. Why? Because they've got an eye on themselves, on their own glory. They, they, they want to use the Bible to make much of them. It's kind of like a self-help book. Or, or you, you, you can read it wrong in various ways. You can have the focus on politics. You know, is this a political book? Or is this just an end times book? Or is this a book about Israel? Or is this a book about me and how great I am? No, no, it, it has moments in there of all of those things. But actually, it's about Jesus. There is a right way and a wrong way to read the scriptures, and Jesus is saying you've been reading it wrong. It's all about Christ. End of the lecture. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to move from this amazing doctrine of the economic trinity, and I want to segue to from talking about the divine nature of God to how the divine nature is revealed in creation, especially on Mother's Day. And so I want to just finish with a few thoughts on the wonder of God's divine nature reflected in creation. So with all of that in, in the background, right, the doctrine of who, who God is, I want us now to consider how we are made in God's image. So think about it. I've just described to you, we, we, we serve and worship one God in three persons and the wonder of the dynamic relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. How is that reflected in creation? And what does it mean for us? So the wonder of God's divine nature reflected in creation. And where do we go? Well, we go to the beginning, Right? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form, remember? And was empty. It was chaos. And then God spoke. 
And, and, and there was darkness, wasn't there? There was darkness over the face of the deep. And, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God spoke and he separated. What did he do? He separated the light from the darkness. There was a separation. There was light and there was darkness. There was heaven and there was earth. And then he continued to create. And there was day and there was night. And there was morning and there was evening. And then he separated the waters above and the waters below from the sea and the land. And there was sea and there was land. And we can continue with this theme. And it, it begins to unravel. And then eventually it ends. And there was a day of rest. And as we think through creation, the unfolding of creation is the revealing of the very nature of God. The very first thing we see is that God distinguishes things. He distinguishes between sun and moon. He distinguishes between fish and birds. He distinguishes between livestock and creeping things and wild animals. And then when it gets to the pinnacle of, of his creation, and he begin, begins to create man, and he be, begins to create male and female, and he breathes the Spirit of God into man and woman. And what does he say? It says in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Here it is. Male and female, he created them. God's work in creation is a divine revelation of his own nature. He created man, how? In his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. And as we get to this point, we, we, we see that there is a series of, of important distinctions that, that bring order from chaos, right? This is how God brings order to creation. This is how God brings fullness to creation, because the problem was disorder and emptiness. The problem was just darkness, and he brings light, and he separates, and he brings life, and he brings humanity in the image of God, male and female. And, and, and what do we begin to see emerging is the very image of God embedded in creation. The, 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 the divine nature of the, the Godhead is revealed in the cosmos. And what we see is there is beauty in difference. There is beauty in difference. At the heart of creation is not sameness. Do you see that? God doesn't want everything to be the same. Part of God's creation is beauty in difference. And there is wonder and there is majesty in beautiful difference. The cosmos is made up of complementary pairs. We got light and dark, we got day and night, we got earth and sky, we got birds and beasts, and we got male and female. Let's not destroy what God has created. Let's not try and make it all the same. Mothers. Be mothers, 
Fathers, be fathers. Men, we need you to be men. There's this horrible cultural narrative out there where, where, where the, 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 the impulse is to just flatten everything and, and to make everyone the same. No, there is beauty and difference. This is, the, this is the wonder of God's creation that Christians believe that there is male and female and we are not identical and we don't have to be. That there is beauty in race. Oh, beloved South Africa, there is beauty in race. We don't have to all be the same. We should not be colorblind. We should rejoice in difference. God has created us, male and female, all colors, all types, all backgrounds. I know what they're trying to say when they say we should be colorblind. Like, let's not let racial division separate us. But rather than just not being, and rather than just being neutral, we don't want sameness. We want to celebrate difference. Because God himself has revealed that in his divine nature. And so what do we see right at the beginning? Right at the beginning in Genesis 1, we see a story of order and life. Order and life. Order and life. And it comes through separation. It comes through, let's use a better word, distinction. He doesn't want it all to be one. He wants there to be two. He wants the, the, the distinctions mustn't collapse. Imagine if the distinctions collapse. Imagine if heaven and earth just collapsed. Imagine if all of these beautiful distinctions just collapsed. Listen to Andrew Wilson. He speaks to this in a really good article on this particular point. He says this. He says, life comes through beautiful difference. When the heavens interact with the earth in the form of sun and rain and soil, you get plants and animals. Here's the contrast. Whereas identical pairs are as barren as a cave. Imagine, so he's illustrating. Imagine if you have earth above and earth below. What have you got? Nothing. A recipe for disaster, right? Or Jupiter, the planet, sky above, sky below. Recipe for disaster. Can't create anything. No life. He says, given the connections between the sexual and cosmological complementarity, it's not surprising that the abolishing the distinction between the heaven and the earth is connected to the abolishing the distinction between male and female. It's a disaster. If we try and destroy the distinctions between male and female, mothers and fathers, if we are shooting for mothers and mothers, fathers and fathers, it is a complex, broken way of life. And we as the church are called to model beautiful difference. We are to celebrate our distinctness. Yes, there is equality. Just like the Father and the Son are equal, equal in worth. But the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son. They don't collapse into one. That's not Christianity. That's paganism. Paganism wants everything to be the same. Christianity celebrates difference. One God, one worth, Three persons. 
And it's the same in the, re the revelation of creation. And even with the church, and I want to end with this point, because in the church we are called to be like Christ and to be like Christ's body. And each is different. Christ and the church served together, but they served differently. Christ served us by dying. We serve him by responding to his leadership. And God brings order into the family, and he brings order into culture, and he brings order into society when we uphold these distinctions and not flatten them. And so church, I want to call us. There's so much brokenness, and we need to, we need to be loving, and we need to be kind and we need to be compassionate where there is this brokenness, where there is this cultural mandate to try and reverse all these things in the name of sameness, in the name of unity. Let's not, let's not be arrogant about this. This is a truth that we treasure. This is a truth that we receive from the divine Godhead. We receive it in ourselves, and we want to model it in creation lovingly. And so mothers... Be the best moms. Don't try and be like dad. You don't have to. Be your mom. Dads, be dads. Men, be men. Brothers, be brothers. Sisters, be sisters. Grandmothers, be grandmothers. Grandfathers, be grandfathers. And not only biologically, but spiritually, as Jade was saying. A healthy church is where we see fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, honoring one another and reflecting the divine nature of God himself in the church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We want to pray that you would help us in these things. In this day and this age where this isn't what's celebrated, this isn't what people are hoping for. Lord, we really do feel like this is a cultural moment that we need wisdom with. And so we pray for grace, Lord. We pray for grace and love to, to flood our hearts. We want to see your way established, your principle lived out through the church and in society. We thank you for the blessing of male and female. We thank you for the blessing of fathers and mothers. And Lord, where there is brokenness, and where there is confusion, we pray for light to penetrate darkness. We pray for the light of the gospel, the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ to bring order and life. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to do this in love, to do this with patience, with kindness, to celebrate the beautiful difference that you created. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunities that lie ahead of us. We pray that you would build your church and establish her in the earth as a beautiful witness, a witness to our glorious God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.